All right, welcome back to another episode. Hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans, as I frantically scroll to the top of the page to read this intro, it's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. A place where we recognize that Pern is fantasy. So without further ado, Shut your face. uh, Ouch. I'm wounded. Uh, without further ado, let's introduce our guest, the legendary, the one, the only, Mr. Rick Partlow. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing. I'm alive, so that's all I can ask for. That's a good so start. It is. Uh, <laughs> I don't write the other kind of books where dead people are, are paramount. Like, we let them stay dead for now. Who knows? Sure. That might change. Yeah, that could change. I mean, I might try my hand at fantasy and have undead. That could happen. But uh, like, so Rick, I'm like, Rick, I'm like are the you kid. Sure you know what fantasy is, Jr. <laughs> there be dragons. That makes it fantasy. Uh, there be dragons actually is a science fiction novel by John Ringo. There will be dragons. You shut your pile. It's not All my right. fault. All right. So uh, Rick, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I am uh, from Central Florida. I've lived here most of my life. I was born in Tampa. I. Um, was a history major in college, and I got commissioned into the uh, U.S. Army. Spent some time on active duty in the 25th Infantry Division in Hawaii. And uh, after that, I bounced around a lot from one job to another and finally decided to finish writing the books that I had been working on since college and tried to get them traditionally published. And when that didn't work, I forgot about them and did other things until 2011 and then since 2011, I have published 42 books. Because he doesn't sleep. Not much. I don't have a social life. Social lives are overrated. They are. They are. So the second part of the introduction, dear listener, is we talk about how we first met them. So I actually found Rick through some of the various um, forums for military veterans that write. Uh, some of the groups that have since been yeeted by the, the great and mighty Zuckerberg. Uh, but in the meantime... Uh, I read his books. I liked it. I published one of his short stories, or maybe two. I don't know. I don't count these things. Three. And, uh, and then we met in Vegas, <laughs> but uh, we don't talk about what happens in Vegas. He made me sign a non-disclosure agreement. It was a thing. I don't know. I hope his wife's not listening. He might be in trouble now. I, I don't even remember what she looked like by now, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, did he uh, say she or you? We're just going to move on. This is a family-friendly show, Doc. <laughs> so, Doc, how did you first find Rick Parlow? Um, I think through Facebook and it a lot, just a lot of mutual friends and all of a sudden it was like, oh, there's Rick again. Blah, blah, blah. Turning I, up I, like I don't a think I've even met you in person. See, booze is not always involved. Well, I will meet you in person if you are in Dragon Con in September. I, I don't have a choice. They're making me go. Well, I am going to be going for the first time, so I will see you there. Oh, that must be why I think you friend requested me after you got accepted. Yeah. Because I'm one of the directors for fantasy literature. So, you know, they so, think JR doesn't know anything about. So, so you get to talk about Pern on your track? No, that falls into <laughs> sci-fi literature, which is run by the great Sue Phillips. Uh-huh. I'm going to get you to admit the truth one day. It's not. There's computers, genetic engineering. Maybe if you read the book, you'd understand this. Blah, blah, blah. All right. Let's ask him no, our legal no, no. questions so we get to decide if he gets to stay. 
Okay, so Star Trek, Star Wars, or Firefly? And this is a very important question, even at Dragon Con. Well, uh, to carry on with the religion analogy, I guess you would say I was raised in the church of Star Wars because some of my earliest memories of being interested in science fiction are, are just buying everything Star Wars comic books, a LP record of the the soundtrack, not the soundtrack, like the actual lines from the movie with a little narration they threw in. So I, I had all the toys, had everything. So Star Wars until the prequels, and then I kind of, to quote R.E.M., was losing my religion. And uh, after, and then I guess after that, I kind of became more of a firefly, converted, you know, to that, to that faith. Although I really like the expanse, so I guess I'm kind of polytheistic. That's fine. We welcome the polytheistic. So, on to the fantasy version of religion. Lord of the Rings, Game of Thrones, or Harry Potter? Uh, definitely Lord of the Rings. Uh, I, <laughs> I, I read one Game of Thrones novel, and that was enough for me. Harry Potter was fun, but it was for me, it felt more like a kid's thing. Well, Lord of the it is sold in the children's department. Yeah. Lord of the Lord of the Rings was what really got me into reading fantasy. Well, actually, The Hobbit, but then The Lord of the Rings after that. They kind of fold together. We'll count them yeah. together. So, which one was your first love? Fantastical fantasy or scientific sci-fi? Science fiction, definitely. Uh, one of the first books I remember reading, uh, like a real book, not like a you know kids book was uh, I can't remember the name of it, but it was like a science fiction thriller type thing, but, but YA, you know, like middle grade mm -hmm. maybe. Uh, and after that, I read a book called uh, secret of the Marauder satellite by a guy named Ted white. And that's a hard book to find. It was it's published in the, um, in the late sixties. And it really hit all the, the right, you know, areas for me. It was like a YA novel and mm. um, it got me into science fiction. Then I read Heinlein, went to the library. I checked all the Heinlein juvenile books out over and over and over. Moon is a harvest mistress. He wrote one of my, my, one of my favorite. That's not, that's not, that's not, the, that's not one of his juveniles really. Um, right. That's it, not. I, there's mostly. Um, it's have space. It will travel. Is that yeah. Have space. It will travel. I have read that. No exaggeration, probably at least 600 times. <laughs> the, the Menace from Earth is one of my favorite short stories, though. Yeah. Which is uh, also by Heinlein, for those who don't know. But have space people travel. I, I checked out the Brandon Library over and over, and they had that hard back with the plastic cover that had the purple spacesuit and the purple alien, the yellow background. Uh, and Between Planets, Time for the Stars, uh, Red Planet, uh, and you know the Rolling Stones, mm -hmm. space, uh, space Cadet. I read all of those things over and over. That's awesome. That's uh, some good learning, good classic literature right there. So I definitely approve. I like the classics. So what is it that you love though about the science fiction and fantasy genre? Well, um, I guess it's. I guess it's that you don't feel trapped in reality. I mean, like 
if I wrote in any other genre or, or read in it, I would like thrillers or mysteries or, you know, uh, military action or whatever. The real world kind of like closes it in and you can't go certain places without taking it into science fiction. Like, you know, you, you, you have to, you can't just say, oh, well, yeah, uh, we got into a war with the Soviet Union or whatever because well, it didn't happen. So I, I like, I like being able to have an open story where anything can happen. And I'm not thinking, well, yeah, some things can happen, but not this. This isn't yeah, going to happen. Some of Tom Clancy's classic books now are, they're very dated. They're because, alternate history, really. Yeah, at this point they are. So yeah. I definitely, I think there's a longer shelf life for, for some of the science fiction and the fantasy. There is, of course, with science fiction, I've found that a lot of things that I predicted when I was writing science fiction back in the 90s are science fact now. So, <coughs> Jay, are you confused by that conclusion? No, I was trying to find it. There's a um, <laughs> an author that uh, is actually trying to bring back the, uh, the literary style of the Heinlein juveniles, author J.D. Sawyer. And he was actually doing a, it looked like it hasn't been published yet, but um, he was actually writing a manual and he was like breaking down like the, so you've got the hero's journey, the heroine's journey. He was breaking down like the structure of what made a Heinlein juvenile. Um, to the, the idea of course is that kids needed aspirational stories because there's so much grimdark out there that uh, he was hoping to bring it back. I just thought it was interesting because you mentioned it. I was going to see if I could find it. That you yeah, remember yeah. reading those. Well, I mean, there's a lot of classic sci-fi authors who like who publish books that would be considered YA now, but YA wasn't even a genre then. Actually, the only difference between, well, as I understand, the only difference between Heinlein's juveniles and the regular work he did was he he left out sex, violence, and cursing because he wanted to get them in libraries, and the librarians were very, you know, like. These, these these are kids' books, so we don't want all that stuff in them. So it was very much I, – I think that's what I think attracted me to those as opposed to other YA or wasn't really YA at the time. The stuff directed at middle-grade kids was that he didn't, like, pander to them, that that yeah. everything was, was actually – like, he used really, really complex math in a lot of these things, you know, and physics and yeah. did not did not hold back anything. So. so the uh, Orton, especially not his philosophy, because the some of them read a lot more like political treaties and philosophical tomes than they did actual stories. Like Red Red Planet is very political. Yeah. So uh, between planets, another very political and timely. If you read it, uh, look at a at uh, how how government can like worm its way into every part of your life and. Absolutely. So how did your love of the science fiction genre transition into you writing stories in it, both when you started amateur and then when you became a professional? Like, what was the sequence of events? Well, I really started getting interested in writing, I would say, probably around the early 80s, because I had read, like, it felt like I had read everything that I that was already, that was printed that I wanted to read that was, that was, you know, it was it was the same in the same vein as the Heinlein Juveniles or, you know, those kind of books. The the classic 1950s era gleaming silver spaceship books, you know, 
Mm-hmm. And everything that was being written in the in the late seventies felt like it was dystopian and depressing and psychological, and I hated it. So I first started trying to write my own stuff. I mean, I'd written like short stories for like class and stuff, or drawn comic books, but this was that was when I first started trying to write something. And um, then later, when I started writing professionally. I, you know, I had, I had served in the military by then, so I, I kind of put that into the book, and it was military science fiction, although I wasn't really, like, tuned into the genre at the time. I, I just knew that it was a military-centered story, and I was able to use my experience to... So that's how I kind of wound up in the field of science fiction where I am. It was, it was just... Uh, I want to, what's the world of synthesis, I guess, of the stuff that I was reading in the late eighties, which was the cyberpunkish, uh, Walter John Williams, William Gibson style novels with the 1950s, uh, space opera, silver spaceship Heinlein. And I kind of put that together with the, my military experience. And, and that's how the stuff that I actually write now came about. <clears throat> That's a very thought out answer. Thank you. <laughs> just thought of it just now. <laughs> You're doing good on your, <clears throat> on your feet. So many authors let their own sort of real life experiences influence the kind of stories they tell. So was there any specific formidable moment you think that shapes you as an author or is it more a collection of the parts? I didn't have too many formidable moments, but uh, I, I don't know that my real life has shaped me as an author that much. Except, I mean, there's some things like I, I, I like wildlife photography and outdoor nature. So I put a lot of that into my some of my later books. But aside from that, really, mostly it's what I've written and watched, you know, that is that has really shaped me as an author. Like, you know, besides the books, a lot of movies were their way into it, too. Like, uh, obviously, Star Wars, Aliens. Aliens had a big, big effect on me as an author when I was younger like in college, um, I was like the space Marines and aliens were like the coolest thing ever. I never I definitely, really liked the movie aliens though. Uh, I, I, did, but I, I mean, I, there's some things I didn't like about it, but I, I, I just love the, the look, the atmosphere of the movie. Uh, same with Blade Runner, you know, just the atmosphere of that universe really rubbed off on me. So that, that kind of thing, you know, the, the grimy, dirty, lived-in look of Aliens and Blade Runner, and to some extent Star Wars. I mean, because that was, you know, it, it the original series, the original trilogy, not the the crap that came afterwards, had a, a really lived-in look, and you know everything was broken down and wires hanging from the ceiling in the in the Millennium Falcon. You know, it was it was very lived-in. We call that a budget. <laughs> Why make it shiny when you can make it lived in for cheaper? That's true. But uh, I can't blame them. You know, money is real. So speaking of the military, since you mentioned it earlier, your bio mentioned that you uh, served in the U.S. Army. So we ask all our veteran authors this, but how do you feel like your time in the big green weenie affects the stories you tell? Um, I think that uh, I think it gave me an appreciation for, I mean, it helped me to like grow into the, to the idea of accepting that other people have their own 
story they're telling themselves in their head than I do. And I read a lot of I read a lot of books, and I don't feel like people have gotten that idea that the main character tells his story, and everyone else is there to support it. And it's like they don't have their own story that they're telling themselves in their head. But if you serve in the military, you have to accept the fact that other people's points of view and other people's perspectives are just as important as yours, because a lot of them are superior officers and can tell you what to do. So you either you either think of them as you know, annoyances, you know, and pains in your butt, or you learn to accept that maybe they're right and you're wrong. And I think that's an important thing that a lot of people don't put into their writing, that the idea that the main character isn't the only real person in that novel. I think that novels more so than TV shows and movies allow for an opportunity to be an ensemble cast, Mm -hmm. like a truly an ensemble cast. True. And the, the better stories that I read really get into the side characters and give them personality. But, you know, if they weren't, if, if everybody did it, then they wouldn't be better. They'd just be the same. <laughs> Fair enough. So do you ever draw from people you knew when you were in the military? Some, um, honestly, the people I knew in the military uh, were kind of boring. <laughs> no, don't mean to be. I mean, they they weren't bad people, but they were they were very professional, except for a few dirt bags who I'd rather not remember. But I do draw from a lot of the people who I knew when I was in the National Guard and ROTC in college, because they were colorful, especially the people in the National Guard, very colorful characters. You sure you were in the infantry? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because uh, most people, I well, you were an officer, so you were protected from the shenanigans. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I don't know what the, the, the sergeants were doing. I knew that the privates were, because I had to counsel them, on, like they were getting stupid loans for cars they couldn't afford and, and renting furniture and then falling behind on the payments and things like that. So I knew that, that young privates were dumb. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's not even the dumbest thing. But I didn't. I didn't get into the wild stuff that was going on there. But like I said, in the National Guard, I was hanging out with the enlisted men, so that like, they were more fun. We had a private who decided to rent his barracks room. <laughs> nice. Yeah. No. I mean, that's not even the dumbest thing I've heard. But I, I can tell you that the most colorful guy I ever met was in the National Guard. Is his nickname was Val. I won't say what his real name was because I don't want to like out him or anything. But. He was in the uh, 1st Marine Division in, in Vietnam. Wow. And uh, he was in, he had like gotten out and then got back into the Army National Guard and was an E-5. And he was a, <laughs> he was a um, career E-5. I knew a lot of those. He was a team leader, too, not even a squad leader. So, but the, he was the most colorful character. He, he used to do things like we would, we would go out on a tactical operation. This is an infantry unit. And he and his, his team would set up a poncho city and pull out like a Coleman stove and start grilling steaks. Why would they? <laughs> well, it was supposed to be tactical. And the company commander came over and like, Val, we're supposed to be tactical. I said, oh, yeah, we'll be done in just a second, sir. <laughs> <laughs> and best story ever, we had this one platoon that we called them the lost platoon because every time we go out at night, they would get lost. So we were getting ready to go back to the armory after a long and boring and miserable weekend. And they got lost on the way back to the trucks. Of course. And the company commander is talking to the platoon leader on the, on the 
radio saying, okay, now I want you to look, there's, there should be a, like a, a, a radio tower. You should be able to see the light. And Val, who has a 203, uh, gets pissed off and fed up. And he scrambles out of the truck and says, sir, just tell him to follow this down. And he fires a parachute flare into the air above the trucks. <laughs> and the company commander doesn't even blink. He's like, okay, uh, there's a flare coming down our position. I want you to look for it was the most funny thing I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, my platoon sergeant, when I went to Iraq, was a non-vet, too. He's one of those ones who you get out, and then you look at the thing, and you be like, crap, I'd be retiring if I'd stayed in. <laughs> that moment people get. So he went back in the guard and did his 30, and just when they thought he was done, he was getting ready. He put in his retirement papers the same time he filed for Social Security, and they're like, yeah, you're not done. You got one more <laughs> war zone left in you. So those oh, were some, some interesting days. But uh, I was expecting something like, you know, Private Joe Snuffy goes to the evening out on town and meets the woman who happens to like dancing a lot for tips and decides <laughs> they really do love each other because that happens too. It we does, have, but I did not encounter that particular thing. We had an officer in. who did that. And he I, thought he was special because she she spent, she was with him twice as long as she was with other people. <laughs> had nothing to do with he probably yeah. spent twice as much. Uh, that marriage did not last very long. <laughs> well, the one that I knew about, he he married her partly to get out of the barracks, and they're actually still married, and that's been oh. a decade and a half. So good for My them. My favorite story about that was we had, had a soldier who she married another guy. She was gay. She married a gay guy from another battalion who was about ready to deploy. For, and another, he was in a transport unit, and we were in 1-1. And his company decided, since he was newlywed, that they'd leave him behind on rear detachment. So then they were stuck with each other. <laughs> you didn't get married for the money, did you? Because if you did and you weren't really like a thing, that would be falsifying. And watching them try and stuff it out was hilarious. I mean, I got nothing that's going to say that's not going to get us banned from every platform. So we'll move on. And I'll ask you instead. So we no, talked about... You go. go. Go ahead. If you if you want to go there, you're going to be brave. <laughs> I will be brave. I will say that uh, when trying to screw over the army, beware. It has more practice and a better success rate at screwing over the soldiers than it, than it will on screwing it. <laughs> they don't call it the big green weenie for nothing. So speaking of, we talked about how the time your time in the army affects the stories you tell. But does it affect the stories you read and engage with via games, movies, books? Really, because I was into the kind of stories I read long before that period, long before I thought about going to the army, I was, I kind of was stuck in my, in the kind of stories I liked before I went to the military. So I kind of read the same things I used to. I mean, I read military science fiction now, but I read it before I went in too, so. Okay, fair enough. All right, Doc, you get to ask your Fandy questions. <laughs> Fandom. Fandom ah. questions. So have you found somebody cosplaying one of your characters or any real cool fan art? No, not at all. My fans apparently are not artistically inclined. No <laughs> one has ever sent me a picture. I've had a lot of fans ask to get redshirted, uh, but that's about as far as it's gone. I have not had anybody uh, send me a drawing of any of my main characters. So. There have been, I've been to a couple of charity auctions where authors at, that are guests of the convention will go, okay, who they'll, uh, they'll auction off a red shirt slot. Um, those have gone for surprisingly pretty pennies. I just give them away. <laughs> uh, 
you know, if you're killing people in job lots like David Weber can, George R. R. Martin, it helps to have I'm, volunteering sacrifice. I've got, I've got 42 books. Lots of people have died. <laughs> <laughs> so has anyone ever asked for your autograph out in public away from a convention or a book signing event? No, nobody, nobody ex away from a convention or book signing event knows who I am. <laughs> have you yeah. ever spotted anybody reading one of your books in the wild? No, mostly, most of the books I've sold are eBooks. So it, it's be kind of awkward. Can I see what you're reading on your phone? <laughs> you know, that's how you get restraining orders and Elon Musk sends you cease and desist letters. It's, you it's know, six feet, man, six feet. <laughs> What's the weirdest or funniest story you have about a fan interaction since you started writing? Well, I don't know about funny. I don't really too many funny. I, I did have, I've had some interesting and weird fan interaction. The most interesting, interesting one, which is not weird, is a um, guy that I knew wanted me to put his daughter as a minor character in one of the books because she's uh, she's like uh, <clears throat> she had like a learning disability and, and was you know working on reading and he wanted her to read it and I put her in one and with the intention of being like a brief character in one one book and she wound up being one of the main characters throughout the whole series and then in another series. So that's kind of cool. Um, well, I hope she's read them. <laughs> yeah, she has. And I also had, I also had a fan write me like this huge multi-page letter unsolicited. I did not ask for a uh, beta read or anything. This, he just wrote me this multi-page letter telling me about in detail, like you would not believe how I had the Marine ranks wrong in my book. Despite the fact that I'd even mentioned in the first book that these aren't the U.S. Marines, they're like a big compilation of the Royal Marines, U.S. Marines, the Army Airborne, and other things stuck together, and the ranks aren't the same. But he had to, he had to write me this multi-page letter telling me how I had the ranks wrong. So I appreciated that. Thank you. <laughs> yes, that's well, not the U.S. Marine. If you wanted course, to do it right, you now have a manual. <laughs> There you go. I had one of those because I used like huzzah or something just to be a little different. And they're like, that's not what the Marines say. I'm like, yes, but that's what space Marines say. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I got, I got so tired. Of, I've written so many space Marines. I The last series I started after Drop Trooper, I actually made them army just because I was tired of space Marines. Someone I would say space my Marcus. favorite space Marine logo is Harris UV gets retribution. Say that again. I'm sorry. Favorite favorite Space Marine type logo. Harrison yeah. begets retribution. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's Space Marines. <laughs> 40K. Yeah. That's what I thought. Yeah, yeah I no. want to see Space Gurkhas just to be different. They have some of those in the 40K universe. Well, friendship really? is... Yeah. Siska. Hmm. Friend, friend, friendship is magic, and magic is heresy. Exactly. <laughs> All None right. The puns so. are the best. Y'all are weird. I thought I was weird, but y'all are weirder. Hey, you know what? You love it. Um, Do I? Do so I? tell us about the highlight reel of what you have done. What you read? Life? Oh, okay. No, yeah. <laughs> um, you're publishing author life. I mean, if you want to tell us about the other stuff, we'll listen. We've got the <laughs> therapy hour going. You got all your adoring fans listening. 
the bibliography, the bibliography is more interesting. Trust me. Um, <laughs> I've written you the duty in Florida where they have meth gators. Hmm. Meth gators. I've had a lot of a lot of stories with gators. I've got an interesting story where one tried to kill me, but we'll go into that later. Um, this duty on our planet trilogy. Glory Boy, the Birthright Trilogy, the Recon Series, the Acheron Series, the Cywar Trilogy, Seeds of Gaia, the Mech Force Trilogy, which is upcoming, which is actually republishing of the Broken Arrow Mercenary Force, which I did with another author, uh, the Wholesale Slaughter Series, the Drop Trooper Series, the Earth at War Series, and the upcoming Holy War Trilogy. See, you can use that slogan. What, what, I almost got killed by a meth gator? No, 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 but like <laughs> retribution slogan. Totally will fit in that. Okay. I, I like some weird stories come out of Florida, but that's where the um, the bath crystal thing started too, so. Yes, that's true. What that's, of, with, South where Florida. they ate the guy's face, yeah. One of our local radio DJs does a daily segment of highlights from Florida. <laughs> but you live in Georgia, so you've got to do something to be better than somebody. We are better than a lot of people. <laughs> All right, moving right along. <laughs> you have Dragon Con. Leave me alone. You do have Dragon Con in Atlanta. So while all of those sound fascinating, uh, including the Meth Gators, um, today we're going to talk about your dropship or dropship drop trooper universe. So more specifically, Contact Front, which is the first novel in the series. So where did you get the premise for this universe and the series? Um, was it psychedelics? The Ouija board? Overindulging in? whatever trail food you eat when you're out taking pictures of nature? Uh, it was worse and weirder. It was from a J.R. Hanley anthology. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. That's <laughs> weird. It came from a, the short story I wrote for your anthology, Back Last Area Clear, uh, which also included, I believe, a Dragon-nominated short story by no, Richard Fox. It, or it was Hugo-nominated. Uh, Hugo-nominated. Hugo-nominated, sorry. Um, see, when I wrote that, I was thinking I had written almost every point of view from this war that happens in that, that future history. I'd written like uh, force recon Marines, pilots, commandos. I'm like, what's left? Only thing that was left was either somebody on a starship, like a cruiser, which seemed boring to me to write a whole series around them and everybody else had already done it or somebody in a battle suit. And I dig battle suits, you know, they're cool. Uh, but they'd also been done by a lot of people, you know, Heinlein, Ringo, a whole bunch of people have done that. Uh, John Steakley, Armor, one of the best military science fiction novels ever written. Um, so I was like, there's got to be something different about this guy or else it's not going to be interesting. So I'm like, let's, how about a guy who is agoraphobic, who can't stand out being outdoors in wide open spaces and if he gets out of his suit somewhere where he's in the open, he gets like paralyzed by a panic attack and then take him and put him in a situation where he has to be out of his suit and he has to fight the enemy out of his suit. And uh, that's, that's how I got the idea. I wrote the short story and I kind of fudged some details in the short story because, just to make him sound cooler. But when I, wrote the series, I had to change those because I was putting it in my birthright universe, which had very established future history and technology and everything else. So I had to change a few details, but that's how I came up with the, with the idea. 
and I am sharing the picture for you so everyone can see the glorious cover that was, was made by Jamie, Glo uh, Jamie Glover, uh, a famous uh, British guy who likes he's done, weird tea. He's done, several of my he's done several of my covers, actually. It's a he's very done all of the anthology. Cover, so I definitely yeah. heard it. Yeah, he's, he's done all of the covers for our anthologies. He's an amazing okay. creator. So very underrated. So, all right. So we've answered that question. We get to ask the next one. So uh, before we talk more about the book specifically, let's talk about the cover for uh, Contact Front. So let me switch that cover to that one. Um, but can you tell us the story of this cover, how you came up with, uh, with it, the origin story for this? Well, I did not come up with it. It's the uh, Athon Books puts out the Dropshipper series and Steve Bollier is the guy in charge of cover art. And he found a Polish cover artist named Philip something. I can't remember how to pronounce his last name. Uh, and he told him we need, we need a story with powered armor and spaceships and guys dropping out of the sky in the powered armor. And this is the one of the images that Philip came up with, and everybody when they saw it, like, oh yeah, that's the one. That's that's he nailed it. So Steve Bollier can find good cover artists. Okay, I, I really dig it. It's it's definitely got sh shades of uh, drop ship troopers or starship troopers, excuse me, which is why I keep <laughs> merging the cover type names. But uh, I really do like it. So did he do the rest of your covers for the series? Yes, he has done all the covers for the series. Okay. There was a time when, when he kind of dropped off the face of the earth uh, during the whole COVID thing, and we were worried and like, you know, is he, is he going to come back or are we able to get him to the rest of the covers? But then he, he popped back up after like a month. So, well, I mean, a lot of us dropped in and out of everything. True. So. All right, so let's move on to the book itself. What would your 30-second elevator pitch be for Contact Front? An orphan outcast with agoraphobia is drafted into the Marines to fight a war he doesn't care about against an enemy he doesn't understand and has to learn to accept his fellow Marines as his new family. Okay, and what makes your series special? I think it's really the main character. I did not know what made it special to begin with, honestly, because... I, I, I wrote this and I liked it, obviously, I wouldn't have written it, but I didn't think when I wrote it that this was going to be the biggest thing I'd ever written. I just thought, oh, this is just another, you know, series, you know, war, military science fiction series. But I think it's the main character. His voice and his experience seems to reach people. And, you know, he's an outsider who pretends not to care about anybody else and wants to be a loner and doesn't want to let anybody in. And yet he constantly finds himself defending helpless people from bullies, you know, and doesn't, doesn't know why he does it. Cause every time he does it, he gets his ass kicked and, and he gets in trouble, but he keeps doing it over and over. And I think are that. You, are you afraid a fan of captain America? Cause it wasn't that basically his origin story. Well, not exactly. Cause captain America d didn't like push people away. He just, you know, he had friends. He had family. This guy doesn't like friends. He doesn't want anybody close to him. Okay. I think what people like about it is the military genre. The military SF genre is, at this point, very well established. Mm -hmm. So finding those characters that don't fit the standard or the typical mold and the typical tropes 
is kind of is refreshing. Could be. Uh, I, I try. I try to make. I try to make the, the. I know a lot of people do mill SF, and they want to concentrate on the mill part of it, you know, or the SF part of it. You want to either concentrate on like the military tactics or the science fiction technology, but for me, all that is just a backdrop to tell stories from interesting people doing interesting things, and the characters for me have always been the most important thing. Without characters, it's just a bunch of people yelling pew pew at each other. <laughs> people will buy that though oh they will it's amazing that's why star wars keeps selling <laughs> and oh. the mail goes to nick garber at blastersandblades.com speaking of tropes uh because because doc <laughs> likes to talk about all things tropalicious and i can't believe she made me say that word but uh what i did you didn't say it i know i'm gonna roast in hell now so what science fiction tropes do you think contact front hits the best well, Space Marines, obviously. Um, powered armor is a trope all by itself. Uh, the all-knowing company commander, you know, who's who's like the old man, old wise guy who knows everything. The young and fiery platoon leader who's very, you know, gung-ho and wants to do her duty. The ancient and feared first sergeant who, you know, is like like the voice of God and everybody's scared of scared of them you know the typical marine corps wartime tropes that you see a lot okay. don't, don't like messing with stuff that works and and that's all from reality plus decades and decades of science fiction so okay <laughs> all right doc you get to ask the next fun question well one thing are there any unexpected unexpected tropes that you used or that you don't want, or you could say, I don't want to tell you because that might give away the surprise. I guess there's the, I don't know if it's unexpected, but like the outcast who learns to be accepted by family, uh, you okay. know, the, that kind of thing. Uh, I don't know that I put any unexpected ones in there aside from that, maybe. So what subgenre or genres do you think this story fits best into? Well, military science fiction and the space marine subgenre, it, it's very squarely nails that right in the chest from 100 yards out. <laughs> so. Well, you know, that's a good distance. Um, so tell us a bit more about the main character. Well, you, you've kind of told us, but is there anything else you want to tell us about the main character? Oh, yeah. There's a lot more to tell about him. He was... He was born in the ruined remnants of Tijuana, Mexico, which in this future history, there was a nuclear war between Russia and China. And after the war, everything almost collapsed and civilization almost went under. But everybody moved into these mega cities like to conserve resources and you know, centralize everything. And the people who did not move the leftovers, the outcasts, they live in what's left of the old cities. And he lives in what's left of Tijuana, which isn't really, it never really got destroyed, but it just, it's been neglected for over a hundred years. So it's run by criminals and gangs. And uh, his parents are like poor farmers and him and his brother live there. And he loses his family to these gangs and winds up on his own, like wandering through the desert and 
wanders to Transangelus, which is a mega city where Los Angeles and San Diego and that area used to be. And he's taken in and put in like one group home after another, but he never fits in anywhere. And he kind of does, he's kind of afraid to let anybody close to him because what happened to his family. And that's also where he gets his agoraphobia from being out by himself in the open that whole time and almost dying of thirst. And when he, once he runs away from his last group home, he winds up on the street like a con man, uh, ripping off gangs, you know, stealing drugs and money from them. And he was ripping one off and one of their guys tried to kill him and wound up getting killed accidentally and felt felony murder. You know, you cause the death of somebody else where you're committing a crime. You're a mur you're guilty of murder. And they told him you have three choices. You can either serve a hundred years in punitive hibernation or what you can punitive hibernation be, well, they freeze you for a hundred years. And when they, thaw you out, everybody you ever knew was dead, you know, or, or moved on and you get like, and then you get put somewhere like on a on a colony world digging ditches. Um, I mean, and, I've met some people I wouldn't mind getting away from. That might actually be not a deterrent they thought it was. Uh, but the pro yeah, the problem is he was of the opinion that after a hundred years, they probably say, we're not bringing them out, just leave them there. Um, or he could rat on his friends who helped him pull off the crime. They weren't really his friends, but his co-conspirators. Or he could join the Marines and fight in this war that's going on. And the most sensible thing for him to do would have been to rat out his, his co-conspirators because they weren't really his friends and he didn't care about them, but he couldn't bring himself to do it, so he joined the Marines. And uh, the rest is history. <laughs> there are worse things to do. So. Indeed. Um, so are there any secondary characters that were particularly memorable? I hope so. Um, one of my favorite what is Captain <laughs> One of my favorite is Captain Covington, who's their company commander. He mm -hmm. is um, he's been in the Marines for decades, like 30 years. But this is people live longer, so he's you know looks he looks like he's in his 30s still because everybody does. Uh, but he's refused promotion over and over despite the fact that he's had a really distinguished career because he doesn't want to be away from, you know, the action. He wants to be – he doesn't want to be any higher than a company commander because any higher than that, he's not going to be on the front lines, and he feels like that's where he can do the most good. And he's kind of like a legendary officer who, despite only being a captain, knows where all the bodies are buried and can – this way of not being promoted. Yes, it can make colonels, you know, take his suggestions. Um, and then there's First Sergeant Campbell, or Top as they call her, and she's even older. She's over a century old, and lived and she fought in the United States Marine Corps during that war between Russia and China. So she's she's been around forever, and she got out, had a family, kids grew up, and then she's like, well, I don't know what to do with myself now. So she got rid of her husband and joined, joined the Commonwealth Marine Corps. And um, of the rest, I guess Scotty, the squad leader, I, I liked him. I don't know if he's memorable, but he was a, he's like a gosh gee farm boy type, you know, who who wants to get be, become 
Cam Alvarez's friend, that's the main character, wants to become his friend despite the fact that Cam has no interest in it, and he kind of draws him out of his shell. <laughs> I'm what? sorry. I'm just, just picturing this Marine going, I will love you. I will be your <laughs> friend whether you want me to or not. No, he's, he's, not, he's not that typical. I mean, he's not that stereotypical. He's, he's like very he's sarcastic and jokey, and he turns every, every time – Cam tries to blow him off. He kind of turns it into a joke. Yeah, it's that kind of thing. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm just laughing. I, I'm, just, I'm just picturing Andy Griffith in spacesuit. <laughs> oh, shucks. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Now uh, we're going to have to actually read the book so we can listen to the narrator do the all shucks. You I do use no, that line, right? I do not use that line, now. What? You missed an opportunity when you made a oh, red Oh, man, you should have told JR so he could have listened to all of it, and I could have just gone, no, no, he missed it. He does use the line, because he would have listened to it, like, three times. You're mean, Doc. You're mean. I don't know why I keep you around. I don't know. <laughs> I wonder sometimes. But then you tell me, no, come back. See? You're <laughs> like this guy. Uh, so does your story have any bad guys? Obviously, don't give away any spoilers, but... I mean, there, there's the enemy, but they're kind of a faceless bad guy, you know, that nobody really understands. Um, really, antagonist in the first book is another Marine named Wade Cunningham, who he be he believes that Cam got one of his friends killed in an earlier mission, although it wasn't his fault because his communications got shot away. And he didn't know that the, the friend was in trouble, and... Um, but the guy blames him for it. So they, they get into one run in after another in the book. I can see where that could happen. Definitely. Um. So I'm still getting over thinking about this stinking like redneck in space, but anyway, all right, we'll move <laughs> on. Um, so now that you've told us a little bit about the bad guys, I mean, you talked about doc, let's, let's talk about your characters. <laughs> so, if your characters, because of all the horrible things you did to them, ever ran into you in real life, like, you know, um, that Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, how do you see that uh, that interaction playing out? Are they going to kick your butt? Well, maybe the ones that I got killed, they might be mad about that. But they did die heroically, so there is that. Um, I, I think that the main character, at least, he would resent the fact that his family died, maybe, but... Uh, on the other hand, he became something a lot greater than he was ever going to be sitting there in Tijuana, you know, raising chickens. So maybe not. He might he might look at the big picture. Okay. So, all right. So let's give us a little bit of a sneak peek of how the sausage were made, was made. Were there any cool scenes that you wrote for this story that you had to cut that, that you want to use some of the place, but were like just so cool you want to tell us about it right now? I really don't cut anything. I, I, I guess do I'm a, the only one who does that. <laughs> I, I I plot things out really carefully before I write them. And if it doesn't feel like it fits, I get rid of it then. So I don't really write a, a scene and not use it. it. Saves me time. Makes sense. Okay. Well, now the next important question, and it's, you know it's important because I get to ask it. So uh, what can you tell us about the universe? So in many series, the world's where the story is told is as much a character as the protagonist. So can you give us a little bit more of a hint than you already have about what they can expect in this world? Because as I understand it, you've written other series in this universe, correct? 
Yes, I've written somewhere around 18 books in this universe, and it's pretty much huge and detailed. And I started creating it when I was about 18 years old in 1984. And I kept creating it till I was in my 30s. And it's, it's, and of course, I have written so many novels in it that it's, it's history basically from the time that humans discover, well, actually from the time of nuclear war all the way time to where the civilization they're in ends, it's all mapped out. And I've written books in each part of it. Uh, the earliest one is going to be this Holy War trilogy, which is going to take place in the beginning when they first meet the bad guys and they have a war with them. And the war that drop troopers in is like the second war they've had with these same aliens. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, it's got all these little bits and pieces that fit together. It's got uh, the main core worlds. It's got the periphery. It's got the pirate worlds, which are like the outlaws where you can have your really cool, you know, criminal smuggler type of things going on. Uh, then you have the, 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 the bad guys, the Tani, they have their worlds. And then in the latest book books in the drop trooper series, they go like beyond their worlds to worlds on the other side of them that we didn't know about. So it's, it's a huge universe that uh, I still have not plumbed all the depths of. All right. Plumbing the depths. That's a, all right, doc, <laughs> I see you giggling. Oh, I have been reading too many different books for that kind of a plan. <laughs> oh, yes. I know you have. <laughs> oh, JR, I love you. Okay. Clearly, this is part of a series. There are currently seven books. Um, so how many more books do you think there will there are gonna be? Actually, the, um, se the seventh book comes out in June. Uh -huh. Um but it's 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 finished. It's been finished. Is it on pre-order? Yes, it's on pre-order. That's where we saw it. There's going to be at least eight. Um, I, I have everything plotted out through book eight. Uh, so it's if, if, if book eight does well. going to let you do book only eight books. Uh, Athon will keep putting it out as long as people will keep buying it. And I, I have ideas. It's going to go a, a totally different place in book eight at the end. So that different place would open up a whole new story arc. It could be like four more books. So it could be as many as 12 books. Oh, so it really depends on how well your fans it, like it. It does. It, it depends on how they, they like where it's going. If they don't like it, well, bye. <laughs> You've got more stories to tell, so you're good. I do. You'll just take your toys home and go write a different book. We've That's got right. more anthologies coming out. You can start new universes. <laughs> so, are there any, you know, we've talked about the internal consistent rules of science, but what can we expect from some of that? You touched on the hibernation sleep. Any other like distinct, really cool things your science is? Well, I, I like to keep it down to as few impossible things as possible, you know, to, like the hand wavy them. I don't want to like do too much. So what I like to do is make the, <laughs> pardon my dogs. Uh, we like dogs here. I like to uh, make the, the way they use a drive to go faster than light 
for that to be like central to all the technology, the cool stuff. So like the transition drive they use is from this uh, special type of field that warps space time. And that same field is like their defense shield. And it's all this other things too, you know? So, so there's that transition drive is the main thing. And for weapons, they use just, you know, typical stuff, particle accelerators, lasers, rail guns. And, uh, but the, the battle suits do use these plasma guns that shoot out superheated hydrogen. But that's, that's about the only really far out thing beyond the, beyond the transition drive. I've seen you get into some um, pretty intense discussions about whether chemical propellant uh, firearms would be used in the future versus like laser guns and Mac cannons. And so I know you you definitely put a lot of thought into where technology might go. Well, I think that as soon as we have high temperature superconductors, which is really the hang up between all the really cool stuff and us, we will, we will be using magnetic propellant, slug shooters, you know, Gauss guns or KE guns or whatever you want to call them. That I think that is, it's waiting on us to be able to have power storage that's reliable, which is waiting on high temperature superconductors. Until we have those, then I think battery that, life. well, that high temperature superconductors will make batteries last a lot longer. You'll have, uh, you can have capacitors that retain their charge for, you know, a lot longer than they do now if you have high temperature superconductors. So um, I think until then that we'll have some kind of chemical propellant slug shooters and they'll still hang around, but they're going to be different. Like uh, in, in the books, in the, the drop trooper books, the sidearm that the Marines use, it's, it's a, it uses like a propellant to kick it free of the barrel. And then a rocket motor goes off like a gyro jet, but it's a guided missile and if you're wearing the right kind of like goggles or HUD in your helmet or whatever, you can guide the the the, uh, the bullet into wherever you're shooting it at. So it, it's it's you know chemical propellant slug shooters, but it's not it's not like an M16. It's quite a bit more advanced than that. So of all the technology you've invented for your universe, which one would you want to have for daily use at your home? Or daily use? Fabricators. They have fabricators where you put raw materials in and pretty much it'll it'll build anything that with those raw materials that I mean you have to put in the right raw materials. You get, they have like metal slugs and you know ceramic you, you put all this stuff in and it builds it and it can build okay. like industrial size things. So I'd do that because I could build a car, a 20 millimeter Vulcan cannon. So normally we ask Nick, what would you, what would you abuse it and how? Oh yeah. I would make my own 20 millimeter Vulcan cannon. And he can't tell for legal reasons who he might shoot or his publisher will get very mad at him and give him the disappointed <laughs> dad face that Jason gives me. Dude, you just have it just to say you have it. Even I know that. What's uh, the point of having it if you're not shooting it at something? I would shoot it at a tank that I made in my fabricator. See, there you go. That's a good answer. It's like you know a lawyer or something. He'd use it against the meth gators that try to kill him. There you Uh, go. Or he'd make Robotech meth gators. No, no. No more meth gators for you. 
I don't know if the I don't know if the gator was on meth, but he sure acted like it. <laughs> so, do you have aliens in your universe? Yeah, I have the the Tani are the only aliens that we know about at first that are still alive, um, and they're humanoid. They're aggressive, fanatical. Uh, they have they have like a they have a different different biology that makes them like affects their sociology. And there's also the predecessors who left behind uh, these jump gates that we use to go into high, go in, to travel between the stars first before we develop the transition drive. So that they they existed at some point tens of thousands of years ago, and they didn't leave anything else behind except these gates and all the all the habitable planets around us are probably terraformed. By okay. Them. But so, we don't know anything else about them at first. So what when you make these aliens, and we'll just go with the ones that we know about in the book one. Um, how did you go about doing it? Did you think, like, did you just go, eh, sure, that works? Did you uh, <laughs> find a meth gator to draw you a drawing? Um, I don't know. I, 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 my brain is stuck on meth gators for some reason tonight. Uh, I, I made them humanoid. Mostly because I didn't think I could accurately predict how a non-humanoid alien would react to things or its psychology. So I made them like really close to humans. And I kind of imply that they might have been genetically engineered from humans at some point. So I, I made them very close to us. And then the predecessors, eventually I do reveal uh, who they are, where they came from. Uh, it's actually in the Birthright trilogy, which I wrote first before this, but in in time timeline, it's much later. So if you want to find out who the predecessors were, read the Birthright trilogy. Okay. That was devious. I like it. <laughs> he planned it that way too. So um, are you planning on doing anything else in the universe besides what you've already got out? Is your next series um, after you finish book Bazillion? And this one going to be in the same universe, or are you going to try branching out and doing something different? Uh, both. Um, I have I already have a trilogy called the Holy War trilogy. The first book's coming out May twenty fifth, called Genesis, and that is back at the beginning of uh, our encounter with the Tani and the first war we had with them. And I also have another series that I'm thinking about that takes place after that, but before Drop Trooper. Uh, so, I'm, and I'm also writing other things. I'm writing the Earth at War series, which takes place in the near future. So, a lot of different things going on. Okay. And what about plans for things not in this universe, the Duty Honor Planet verse? Uh, I really don't know if I'm going to write anything else in Duty Honor Planet uh, well, because isn't I, this isn't this story set in that universe? No, Duty Honor Planet is that trilogy is in its own universe. Um, oh, okay. I thought this was all part of. So, no, are you looking at doing something outside of the universe that Drop Trooper falls in? Um, I am doing other things outside of it. Like I said, I'm writing the Earth at War series, which is uh, military science fiction, takes place in the near future. Okay. Uh, I've got a couple of ideas for um, other universes. I haven't written in them yet, but uh, I I'm like developing them. So. Yeah, I'm going to write in and out of this universe for a while. Yeah. 
So a little known fact, he actually writes four books at once and finishes them every other day. He's just that crazy fast. I have so. written I have written three books at once. In fact, last year I wrote a million words and I finished twelve novels, and I wrote three three at once, and it worked for a while. I, this year I, I'm not doing that, but I, 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 I value my sanity too much to keep doing it. <laughs> but you take a lot of cool nature pictures this year that you didn't take last year, so there, there's that. Actually, I took a lot of cool nature pictures last year. Well, why wasn't I seeing them? Clearly, you failed me. Obviously, you're not stalking right. Jeez, I need to go back to stalking school. I don't know what I'm going to do. You got to right. go, go to my Rick Partlow photography page. It's on Facebook. Oh, I'm going to add that to the show notes now. So everybody okay. can stalk you properly as it was intended when the internet was invented. All right. That's so right. clearly, this is winding down. But before we wrap this up, was there anything about Contact Front in the drop trip? drop super <laughs> universe that we didn't ask you that you want to tell us before we wrap this up? Um, well, I, I would say that if you want to find out how everything winds up for the people who stay behind in the, in the Commonwealth, you can read um, Acheron and Recon and, and Cywar. They're, they're, you read the Birthright Trilogy and then those it takes it all the way to the pretty much the end of the Commonwealth government. So that will, that will tell you what happens with the Commonwealth and with everybody else, which may or may not have anything to do with what happens to Cam Alvarez book eight. <laughs> all right. That's a heck of a spoiler early people hanging on. So as we bring this puppy home, can you tell our dear viewers and listeners how they can find you on the wild, wild interwebs? Uh, Rickpartlow.com is my website. Uh, my Facebook page is facebook.com backslash duty honor planet. And if you want to email me, it's duty duty honor planet 487 at gmail.com. Okay. And he actually maybe answers it. We think. Rumors. All right. Start rumors. I'm going to start rumors. So you could find us on our website at anchor.fm backslash blasters, tech, and tech blades. Anchor.fm backslash blasters, tech, and tech blades. Twitter at twitter.com backslash sf underscore fantasy underscore show. Twitter.com backslash Sierra Foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show. You can email us at blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com. You can join us on Facebook where we have all the crazy shenanigans at facebook.com backslash blasters and blades podcast. You can support the show at buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Hanley. Just put in the comment section that it's for the podcast, or you can support us over there on Anchor FM if you so desire to help keep the lights on. Uh, we're thinking about uh, enrolling Doc in one of those um, Pern uh, anonymous groups so she can recognize it for the fantasy that it is. Um, it's very expensive, though, so it might take a while to save all that money up. And uh, Doc, bring it home as you picture murdering me in your head for that. <laughs> Thank you for spending your precious time with us for Nick Garber, the very confused J.R. Hanley. I'm Seska. This was the Blasters and Blade podcast. We'll be back next weekend at the same time where we indulge our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, making fun of J.R. and seeing if he ever learned what Pern really is. Sci-fi and things that go boom. <laughs>